And we return to Our American Stories, and when you hear that music, it's time for our Final Thoughts series, where we hear final thoughts about loved ones who've passed away. And today's Final Thoughts is a bit different than usual. It's a business story, and it's about just one moment in time. John Bryan was running his family's third-generation sausage company, Bryan Foods, in West Point, Mississippi, until he moved to Chicago to become CEO of their well-known parent company, Sarah Lee. But who would run their family business, the one that employs almost a quarter of their 8,500-person town? George Bryan picks up the story and honors his brother John. When my brother went to Chicago and I became president of the company here and I was 29 years old, I guess, and uh, when he told me that he wanted me to run the business, and of course, I didn't want to run the business. I told him to give it to somebody else, and I would back him up and give me two or three years, but he wouldn't let me do that. He wanted me to take over, and of course, I doubted myself, and I think he doubted too, but I think he had enough confidence. He thought I could learn it pretty quick. I'd been there, you know, uh, 10 years working all in the plant, manufacturing, sales, marketing, I just hadn't run the business, but I knew I knew a lot about the business, and we had a lot of good people there. You know, at the time, a lot of seasoned veterans there that he thought would better support me maybe than somebody else. My name was Brian, for one, and I didn't understand that. I didn't realize that, but he thought that if I didn't fumble the ball that they would support me, and, and he was right, they did, you know. Our people enjoyed working there and they took a lot of pride in it, which makes a big difference now. And of course, after a while I liked it, but I didn't like it the first year or two because I was trying to learn so much. And then when he left, when he left, he told me he was gonna, he was gonna write a letter and send it to me. And I didn't think a lot about it. I thought, well, good, you know, I'm sure it'll tell me a lot of what I need to do. I mean, I just didn't think about it that much because I was so busy thinking about the business and what I was going to do to run the business and work with people and, you know. I wasn't waiting on the letter, believe me. I had a knot in my head that for about a year that uh, I didn't know what it was, but it was just stress and trying to determine the right course, you know, and I can remember being in an executive meeting and I was making a decision and this was after maybe six months and I had a lot of doubt and and this one person said, I don't know whether your brother would do it that way. And I said, well, you know where the train is? I said, it's right out here. You can take it to Chicago if you want to work for him anymore. And from then on, I didn't have any trouble making decisions because uh, I'll never forget it. And the whole committee just kind of looked at him. And when I said that, he turned about three shades of red and he never questioned me again. Not that I made every decision right, but he knew I wasn't, I wasn't gonna let him throw my brother up to me. And, and I never felt anything, you know, bad about my brother. I mean, I respected him so much, it didn't, you know, I wasn't jealous of him or anything like that. I didn't have those kind of feelings. I just, I just told him, I said, you can go to Chicago if you want to work for him anymore. 
and he, he didn't leave. <laughs> I really wasn't thinking about the letter. And then I don't, maybe a couple of months later, I received a letter from him that, that really explained how he thought, you know, the business should be run. And uh, it was a classic letter of, to your brother of what to do and what not to do. And I, I still read it today, you know, and, and so I based my business philosophy off of that letter. And I read it many, many times. And I don't know whether anybody asked him to do it. I think he was probably afraid because, you know, he was running the overall business, so he didn't want Brian Foods to, to fail. <laughs> <laughs> so he did it, you know, for that. He, and if you kind of followed his letter, it was kind of hard to fail, you know, if you really stayed on what he said. I said, Dear George, Leadership of any management involves properly selecting, training, organizing, and motivating the people. You cannot spend too much time improving your skills for doing this. And sometimes I think that's a natural. Some people have it naturally. Some people have to learn it. Uh, I won't discuss all kinds of motivation techniques it is perhaps worthwhile to read up on this, but the ability to motivate people is in a large part common sense and instinct. To me, everybody has a different button to push. You can't motivate everybody the same way. Some people you have to praise, some people like to be kicked in the rear end, some, you know, but it's just different ways to motivate people. And, and I tried to learn with each person, each direct report to me of how to motivate them, how to get them fired up about their part of the business and how important it was to the overall success of the business. And that was, that was, inter that was interesting to, uh, and obviously you like some people better than others. You got along better with others. Some people you didn't want to meet with as frequent, you know, because you just didn't, didn't get along with them as well. But you have to make yourself appreciate everybody that you're working with and that everybody has a contribution. And so how do you pull that out? How do you understand that? And, and, and we, we thought about that a lot. I thought about that a lot. And on planning, we talked about, he talked about a management that does no planning will go nowhere. There are a lot of companies that really didn't plan well in those days. Planning is by no means restricted to formal budgets and long-range plans. More importantly, in my judgment, affecting planning is a continuous exercise expressed in an attitude which causes everyone to be thinking creatively about what can be done to constantly improve performance. And this was a big factor for me is constant improvement. I'd say every day, you know, Everybody comes to work every day wanting to make improvements, wanting to improve the business, and I think you have to have that attitude. Prices can be raised, yields can be improved, costs can be lowered, expenses can be reduced, and volume can be increased. Something can always be done. We never had a defeatist attitude. If we had a problem, we found a way to correct the problem and move on. Generally, even though we presently have a strong momentum going for us, you should always run scared. 
And that was emboldening in me, you know, to never be satisfied, to feel like, you know, we can make, you know, not that you don't praise people when you have a good week or, you know, but, but you've got to realize it all starts over the next, the next day, you know, and, and uh, it's not about what you did for me last week, it's what you're going to do for me this week. So we had that kind of attitude. We praised our success, but we didn't linger on it. We didn't dwell on it. We were always thinking about how to improve. And that came back from my father and my uncle, you know, years ago. They had the same drive when they started the business in 1936. They wanted to, to build a nice business and grow it and improve it. And that's, that was instilled in us, in my brother and in me. And my brother instilled it in me. And he says, success breeds success unless complacency sets in. Therefore, never let anyone be completely satisfied, for the job is never fully finished. Good luck. Sincerely, Johnny. So that's kind of where he ended. He said, good luck. <laughs> I'm going to need a lot of luck. But, you know, I, I, I read the letter over and over and have probably read it later, later on in my career than I did early on. I mean, I read it and kind of memorized it. And, and you don't really realize until five, ten years later that you're operating under that philosophy, you know, that's been in, embedded in you uh, and embedded in generations, you know, from my grandfather to my father to my uncle to, to us to, you know, it. It stays with you for forever. And it sure does. And that is our final thought segment. And different than usual, but in business, very often as in so many other family endeavors, these legacies get sometimes passed on through a note or something written. And my goodness, he's not kidding when he says he goes back to it regularly because it's the it's the learning spot for him and it's a reminder of who his family is, who his brother was and who he needs to be. Management that does not plan goes nowhere. It's not just budgets. It's a continual process. This is families, too. It's our own life, right? Always run scared. And I don't mean out of fear. He was just saying, never be satisfied. It's all of life starts the next day. By the way, that's the same with our failures. Next day. Don't linger on the failure. Don't linger on the success. Move on. Next day, never let anyone be completely satisfied because the job is never finished. And by the way, the same with failures, right? And we've covered that a lot on this show. Don't linger in that spot. Better days are ahead. Final thoughts, the late John Bryan's letter to his brother George here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org 
They're some of our favorites. Indeed, our next story comes to us from a listener in Tampa, Florida, who follows the show on WHFS 1010 and also on podcast. Here's Jeanette's story. Well, it's actually the story of her father, Angelo Constantine. Oh, how we silently groaned when our dad got started on his war stories. He would go for hours telling us every little detail. If our eye contact drifted off, he would tap us to bring us back to full focused attention. Sometimes he would digress. What was that cook's name? Anderson? Sergeant Jones? No, he wasn't the cook. And who was the mess officer now? We would listen as Dad made his way back to the main storyline. Lipon, Greek word for so then. He would say, to make a long story short, and we would think, too late. But we always continued listening respectfully because through these stories, we got a glimpse of our dad's heart, and that meant the world to us. And the best part, at the end of the story, he would jump up and go prepare an amazing meal for us, showing his love for us through his actions. Born on August 17, 1917 in New York City, his father and pregnant mother had just immigrated from Greece, and he was born shortly after their arrival. He was the firstborn of eight siblings. His family moved to Norfolk, Virginia in 1919 in hopes of finding a job in the bustling Navy town. Growing up in the early 20s, charming little Angelo would stand outside his dad's restaurant on Navy payday, directing sailors to where they could find a good time, hoping to get a small tip so he could contribute to his family needs. You see, Dad would tell us, the restaurant never made any money. It was enough to feed us and the patrons, but never enough to save anything. That's why I had to work for other Greeks, to bring in some money. I started young. Did I ever tell you about how I roasted peanuts for Mr. Galanidis? Ten or twelve years old, hotter than Hades, with this big vat over gas flames. I'd turn that sucker, and then when the peanuts were cooled on the conveyor belt, I'd bag them up in 10-pound bags to deliver around the restaurants on my bike. Luckily, the leftover peanuts, I got to bag up and sell them on the street corners for five cents a bag. That was my pay. Wet, hot, cold, In all kinds of weather, there I was while others were out playing ball. Later in high school, Angelo worked at a drugstore soda shop. Before school, he opened up and made breakfast for the local businessmen and returned after school to work as a soda jerk. Angelo overbecame the shame and embarrassment of waiting on those more fortunate classmates by instead turning the preparation of food into an art. Angelo began his military career in the National Guard of Virginia. A group of his Greek buddies were already signed up, 
and he would tell us. Now, let me see. There was Tony Cajas, Jimmy Theodosis, Nick Grutakis, Pete Pappas, and my best friend, that lousy George Bacalus. He didn't sign up. He stayed back and ran the hot dog stand. Angelo wanted to serve his country and bring in some extra money to support his family. By this time, his father had passed away, leaving him to care for his widowed mother, who spoke very little English, and his eight younger siblings, seven of whom were sisters. In June 1941, the unit was called to active duty and was assigned to the 176th Field Artillery Battalion. Dad was able to purchase a modest home for his family, and he sent his entire paycheck to his mother, keeping only a few dollars for himself each month. While working on a school project, his grandson Sam interviewed his papu about his World War II days. Just notice the details of his answer. Before we went to Europe, we were sent to Fort George G. Meade near Baltimore, Maryland. Fort Meade was a big army camp under construction. We had plain wooden barracks, two floors, and special rooms for the senior members. The higher rank you were, the more plush your room was. Now, it, it may have been those plush rooms that inspired Dad to apply to officer candidate school. Getting accepted was a huge turning point in his life. On November 26, 1942, our dad would proudly tell us, Angelo Constantine proudly received his commission as a second lieutenant in the United States Army. For the first time in his life, he was now giving orders and his confidence soared. And you're listening to the story of Angelo Constantine. And my goodness, to be born in 1917 means you're being born and living straight through the heart of the Great Depression. So what he knew as a young man and what so beautifully is captured here by his daughter Jeanette is this guy knew nothing but work and hard times. And finally, through the military, gets to serve, gets to become a commissioned officer. And finally, for the first time in his life, as she said, he's giving orders. He's not taking them. And my goodness, as we think about today's times and how, quote, hard they are, you just got to laugh. Because what this guy lived through, what the greatest generation lived through, was the Great Depression and World War II. Pretty tough. And listen to the ebullience in the voice and the, and the positive nature of this story. And we're going to hear more of this remarkable listener's story, Jeanette's story of her father, Angelo Constantine. There's stories, both of them, here on Our American Stories. We continue here with our American stories and Jeanette's story. She's sharing the story of her father, Angelo Constantine. And again, Jeanette's from Tampa, Florida, and she listens to our show on WHFS 1010. 
Let's continue with this remarkable story. Dad is now about to enter, well, the greatest war, not just of the 20th century, but of all time, the war to save civilization from the Nazi menace. In a letter to his future bride, he writes of his first assignment as an officer. As to what I'm doing and where I'm stationed, I couldn't ask for better. I'm at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I've been assigned to a colored regiment of heavy artillery, and everything is working out swell. I'm gradually getting used to being a second lieutenant, although down deep inside of me, I'm still the same old fella you used to know. Imagine being a brand new officer as a Greek-American immigrant, whose life up to that point had shared many of the same experiences as his all-black enlisted troops. Although he rarely spoke of it, as a Greek, he also had experienced discrimination. On Christmas Eve, 1942, Angelo volunteered to stay on base and pull duty so that others could go home for Christmas. In his letter, he writes, That's one thing this man's army has taught me, and that is to think of the others in my shoes. We have all tried to make the men under us feel at home, even if it did inconvenience us. You know, like most kids growing up, we didn't realize these qualities in our dad. We saw him more as our own personal private drill sergeant. However, in hindsight, he taught us through his example, and for that we are now ever so thankful. During this time, Dad signed up for many different training opportunities. He went to the chemical warfare school, the bakers and cooks course, and flight school. Here are three of his stories that our family treasures. The Night on the Town. After passing a tough inspection at the chemical warfare school, the soldiers got leave, and Angelo went with a couple of his buddies out on the town. He was pulled with four other GIs to be part of the floor show that evening. They gave the audience a good laugh by doing a chorus line kick to some great swing music. But just as the others were leaving the stage, the female held Angelo back and asked him to dance with her. Dad would say, Honestly, I bet my face burned red, but I didn't get cold feet. I could see my friends at the table laughing their heads off. And well... I decided to do the best I could and be a good sport about it. And just as soon as I heard the orchestra snap into a really hot, rug-hunting tune, you should have seen me go to town. Honestly, I couldn't help myself. My feet just danced, and lo and behold, you should have seen the surprise on that girl's face when I started dancing like that. And wham! More, the audience went wild. It was an awful noise they made. Gosh, I never enjoyed myself so much in ages. Honestly, the way she looked at me when I started spinning, as in proper jitterbugging, and all the time she probably thought that I would two-step 
and she would just have fun making me look foolish. For us kids, hearing about this and seeing a different side of our hard-working dad was a really special story. The Mess Hall Story He told us, After the baker's cook's course, they liked me, and so they kept me on at the school as an officer in charge. We would take food out to the soldiers while they were training out in the field. Good food like beef stew, baked beans, ham, fresh green beans. You know, there were these poor folks from North Carolina standing nearby, watching the soldiers as they ate. When everyone was done and the cooks were cleaning up, they put the leftovers in the trash. The poor folks started picking through the trash to get food out. I heard my troops laughing. When I caught wind of why, I was fit to be tied. I called for the staff sergeant and demanded an explanation. And then the staff sergeant tried to challenge me. And I said, from now on, you're ordered to offer all the leftovers to those people. Dad told of his sorrow as he watched them go through the trash picking out the baked beans. He never forgot the value of compassion for human suffering and that we all could one day be that hungry person digging through the garbage. Flight School The story of Dad's disappointment in not getting his flight wings was first told to his 16-year-old grandson, Sam. We were all shocked. We never knew Dad had gone to flight school. We discovered that Dad's fear of heights did not sit well with his flight instructor's mission. He told Sam, On my first solo mission, I hit the ground and bounced 20 feet in the air. They gave you a chance to explain yourself, and I flunked that too, so I flunked the course. Hearing the disappointments in Dad's voice from failing the course saddened us, yet it helped us to understand his life choices a little bit better. It was also a great example for his two grandsons and his son-in-law as they faced their own trials while serving in the Army. In January 1944, Angelo was shipped out to England, and after D-Day, he was assigned the officer in charge of the convoy trucks, which carried the big guns. In the middle of the night, he walked alone in all kinds of weather down unknown roads using only a map and a compass to search for the intersections, going from checkpoint to checkpoint with orders in hand to give them any changes in the route that the trucks would take the next day. The army could not use radios for fear of the German interception. What tenacity that must have taken for our father to travel down those frozen dark roads wondering if any minute a German soldier would be there waiting. Yet knowing that this small mission, a message to the checkpoints, could change the course of a battle if not delivered. And remember George Backless, Angelo's Greek buddy who could not enlist? He ran a small hot dog stand in Norfolk by the city hall 
and so he wrote to George saying, "What I wouldn't give right now for some backless hot dogs! I bet I could eat six of them." As soon as George read Angelo's letter, he took six hot dogs, hot off the grill, put them in buns with the works, mustard, ketchup, onions, and chili, boxed them up, and immediately mailed them to Angelo. Several months later, Angelo received a package from home, excitedly thinking they might be some of his mom's Greek pastries. He opened it. And saw six smelly, moldy, backless hot dogs. Angelo would laugh each time he told this story. These hot dogs are like George, rotten to the core. You know, growing up, we thought Dad was not a real World War II hero because of his stories were not like the stories of the heroes on TV. But we were sure proud when he told us about capturing a German soldier. And you've been listening to Jeanette sharing the story of her father, Angelo Constantine, one of our many really beautiful listener-generated stories. And my goodness, there were so many heroes overseas and here, all a part of the effort, from the mess hall straight to logistics, people risking their lives, supporting the guys on the front line. And she's right; there are so many different kinds of heroism. And the kind on TV—it's not the only kind. Also, that a father would share his disappointments and his failures with his kids—the best thing you can do in life, folks. Share those disappointments and those failures with your kids, because they're going to have them too. And you live beyond them. You live beyond them. Jeanette's story, her father's story, Angelo Constantine's, continues here on Our American Stories. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. continue with our American stories and Jeanette sharing the story of her father, Angelo Constantine. Let's continue. Growing up, we thought Dad was not a real World War II hero because of his stories were not like the stories of the heroes on TV. But we were sure proud when he told us about capturing a German soldier. Angelo and two other soldiers were on a recon mission, where they would go ahead of the convoy to make sure the area was cleared of Germans after the town had been secured. As they came into the village, Angelo went to the outhouse, and upon opening the door, saw a German officer. Our dad said he didn't know who was more afraid. But he, Angelo, had the advantage, and so he captured the soldier. The German, in broken English, begged Angelo not to shoot, because he had a wife and family back home. 
You can see the German officer shaking and sweating. So he took the Luger and turned him over to the authorities. But before that, he took a photograph of capturing the soldier. After the Battle of the Bulge, leave was granted to his unit. Dad had two weeks, so he did what many GIs did at that time. He got married to his longtime Greek beauty, Athanasia. However, upon his return to Europe, he soon found out that he was separated from his unit and had to make his way back to Germany on his own for fear that he would be declared AWOL. He made his way into central Germany by meeting up with a European mailman. Angelo chatted and discovered that the mailman was going straight to where he was headed, which was near the Czechoslovakian border. So he bummed a ride with him. Finally, after a little over two months, Angelo found his unit at Bivouac. So he went up to central headquarters. The officer in charge of the camp said, What the hell are you doing here, Lieutenant Constantine? I was ordered to remove you from my roster months ago. While Angelo was waiting for orders to return to the States, he was given the job of a lifetime by the commanding officer to transport some crates to the finance office headquarters in Frankfurt. Here is Angelo retelling the story on the Larry Glick Show sometimes in the early 80s. Okay, pick it up. Hello. Hello. What's your first name? My name is Angelo. Angelo. Right. You were in, what was your what was your function in World War II? Tell me that story, Angelo. I was with an artillery unit, and uh, we had arrived in Germany. Uh, this was uh, right after the uh, the armistice was over. Right. I was suddenly given some orders by my commanding officer. Wait, right out of the blue sky, he said, "I want you to take a truck and some." crates and go to Frankfurt. But I took a driver and a weapons carrier. They loaded three, car three, if I recall, uh, wooden boxes, crates. And um, he said, well, when you get out of town, about three or four miles, open the first envelope, which I did. And he gave me my designation as the finance officer at Supreme Allied Headquarters in Frankfurt. And uh, we continued on. It was about an hour's drive from where we were camped. And I turned over the crates to him, and I got a receipt. I had no idea what was in the crates. They didn't open them in front of me. We got back in, my driver and I got back into the weapons carrier and hit it back. And I opened up the letter. And lo and behold, it, <laughs> the contents of those crates were Dutch gilders, gold bars, jewels. What if you'd open that up? What if you'd decided, what rank were you at that time? Second lieutenant. <laughs> Second lieutenant. Yes. If uh, if you were the inquisitive type, you said, "I wonder what's those those boxes, those crates are pretty heavy." Uh -huh. I wonder. I'd take a peek in. I've got a hammer. I'll open up that crate and see what's inside. <laughs> and then you saw it inside, lieutenant. What do you think? You you think you would have taken a couple of gold trinkets? Mm, I don't think so. Not. I really don't. Uh, no, I, my I, curiosity was. Was peaked, but I had no idea it was that worthy. You know that it wasn't farm tools. No, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> and what were you, what rank were you discharging? 
At first lieutenant. First lieutenant. Where, where did you get your commission? Now, at Fort Warren? At Fort, uh, Fort Sill. Fort Sill. Right. Well, you're an artillery man. Right. Well, you're all right, Angelo. And uh, have you had a good life? A very nice one. During the war, Angelo lost his beloved mother. So after the war, when he returned home to a new bride, he had three younger siblings in his care. Gone were his hopes for his future, replaced with the burden of the lifelong responsibility of providing for his family. Dad began working for a Greek businessman, driving a Miller beer truck, and worked dutifully for 38 years, putting in 10 to 15-hour days with a minimum pay and benefits. His natural charm and the salesmanship skills he had developed as a young lad served him well over the years. He was well-respected as a businessman and was often mistaken as the owner of the company due to his dedication. Another extraordinary accomplishment is that Dad never missed Sunday church services, and he volunteered thousands of hours cooking for Greek festivals and Boy Scouts and weddings and baptisms and funerals. He faithfully loved his wife of 60-plus years and raised four children. He showed his love through action in small ways, as often as he could. He believed one did not become a man until joining the army. He believed in humbling yourself without whining or complaining, working hard and giving his all. His pride was such that he wanted each job done thoroughly and correctly, and there was only one way to do it, the right way. He was this way not because of ego, but because he always wanted to give his best effort. Mostly dad's stories reflected how he lived his life by placing the needs of others before his own. He wanted us to learn this through his stories. So often in today's society, we fail to honor someone like Angelo, a first-generation immigrant who asked nothing from his country, from family or from friends, and he gave everything he could. Yes, one might say he was just an ordinary World War II soldier. But those who knew him would describe him as a remarkable man and father. And what a beautiful story. And thank you so much to Jeanette honoring your father this way. How many of us can tell a story in this detail with this detail about our own parents? And maybe this should inspire all of us to be able to do the same. There's just so much here. Um, Never missed a Sunday at church. Volunteered relentlessly. He was so well regarded as a businessman, often mistaken as the owner of that company because he was so dedicated to that company. He believed in humbling himself. What a crazy idea. And not complaining. And by the way, there was only one way to do things, according to Angelo. And that was the right way. And by the way, we know those people in our lives, and they're a pain in the butt, right? But they're not really, because he's not doing it because he's an egomaniac. That's not why he wanted things done the right way, but because you're supposed to, and because hard work. Well, God wants us to work hard, and if you don't believe in God, well, my goodness, you should still believe 
and the efficacy of hard work. Because my goodness, what's the alternative? What is the alternative? What a beautiful story. Again, a beautiful listener story. Jeanette from WHFS 1010 in Tampa, Florida. Her father's story, Angelo Constantine's, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from our very best writers, and Jonathan Rausch is an award-winning author with seven books and many more magazine credits to his name, but the book we're going to talk about today is personal. It's called The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, and it's Jonathan's detective story about why he and so many of us fall into a funk right when we appear to have it all. And Jonathan, you start your book with the story of a man named Carl. Tell us about him. Carl is a guy in his 40s. He's objectively super successful in life. He's got a good marriage. He's got kids that are happy. He's recently switched to the job kind of thing he's always wanted to do. And yet he feels strangely unfulfilled. He comes home at night thinking, what's the matter with my life? Why am I so discontent? He started to feel like there's something wrong with him. And he, he told me he was actually starting to feel a little bit scared. He wasn't even telling his wife about it because he didn't want her to get upset. So he was holding it all in. And I heard this and when I was 54, about 10 years older. And I thought, that is my life. That is exactly what I went through. You know, you wrote that, quote, it feels kind of conceited to bring it up to my friends. They just kind of look at me and say, geez, you got it all. So there's sort of a a shame, oddly enough, in feeling this feeling of, if not depression, uh, unease, fear, at a time when most people would look at you and say, you've got it all. What do you got to complain about? Well, that's right. His subjective well-being, how good he feels about his life. And his objective well-being, the circumstances of his life have completely parted ways. And, and that, too, is what happened with me. I knew I was in trouble when I was 45. I'm a journalist, magazine writer, and I won a national magazine award, which is the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize for the magazine business. It just doesn't get any better. And that made me feel fulfilled for, like, 10 days. And then these creeping ideations of, you know, I'm wasting my life. I should quit everything and go somewhere else. They, they came back. And that's when I knew what was going on was strange and irrational. I felt just the way Carl did. I haven't earned these feelings. I should be grateful. Why am I not grateful? Yep. Why am I not grateful? Let's talk about Dominic. Much of his identity was wrapped up in his work and things hadn't turned out like he expected. And yet he characterized the stage of his life as appreciative. So talk about him in contrast to Carl. Dominic is a little older than Carl, about five years when I spoke to them. They're actually very similar demographically. They're a closely matched pair. They even travel in similar social circles. Dominic has been where Carl was a few years ago. 
he felt that same dissatisfaction and restlessness and unease and sense that he was wasting his life. But by his early 50s, he senses he's begun to kind of turn around. He's he's feeling like his expectations are a little bit lower, and he's somehow feeling more appreciative of what he's got on a day-to-day basis, just you know, being with his daughter, his family. And I, at the start of my book, I juxtapose these two because in many ways, the big difference between them is actually their age. Carl is five years younger. He's at a different point in the happiness curve. Let's talk about Thomas Cole and his series of four paintings, The Voyage of Life. This is a 19th century painter who I think had stumbled upon these insights in his art long before social psychologists had come to the same conclusions we'll get to in a bit. Talk about Thomas Cole. I beheld them for the first time when I was 20 years old, and they just they just stopped me short, partly because of their beauty, but partly because of the story they tell. So Cole is a landscape artist, and he sets out on a commission to do a series of paintings depicting the voyage of life, starting with childhood. And what they show is a baby, then the same young man, then middle-aged, then old-aged, in a boat on a river. In the front of the boat, on the prow, is an hourglass. Behind the boat is a guardian angel, in most of the paintings, out of sight of the young man in the boat. The first one shows a baby emerging from the womb into a kind of garden of Eden, the second one shows a young man exactly the same age I was when I first saw it, about the age of 20. And he's reaching for a castle in the sky. And those are his ambitions for life, not just his ambitions for accomplishing things, but his ambitions for happiness, because he thinks if he accomplishes the things he wants to do, that that's going to be fulfilling. Well, surprise, the next painting is midlife. Rapids, dark clouds, craggy rocks, um, the tiller is knocked off the boat. He's looking overhead and, and praying for deliverance. But blocking his view of the heavens are dark clouds and, and demons. And that's Thomas Cole's portrayal of where Carl is at. What's so interesting about these is that there are no people, buildings, city, society. Nothing like that. It's a portrayal of our psychological journey years before there even was such a thing as psychologically. Cole is saying, this is how it's going to feel to be you at these different portions of your life. And it turns out he's exactly right. You know, it's interesting when you're going through that. And I I hadn't seen these paintings in at least 15 years back when I lived in D.C., And they startled me. But what I did not see in that final painting, because I had my own biases about old age, is I saw all the darkness in that fourth painting and not the light. And that was my own bias. And we're going to get to that later as well. But when you were younger, did you see the same thing? Do we see what we want to see or see what our experience allows us to see, Jonathan? I saw myself exactly in youth because I was 19 and expected great things for myself. I just didn't know what they were going to be. But I thought, you know, I knew I I had an inkling I wanted to be a writer. And I thought, if I could even just ever get one article published in a major magazine, just one, I'd feel fulfilled for the entire rest of my life. So that was completely accurate. It painted my life. And I also remember thinking, 
well, that middle-aged one, that's not going to be me. I mean, I knew it was something like that for my father, but I thought, well, you know, any good thing that happens to me, I'll be grateful for and satisfied. So, in the future painting, the future me, in middle age, the young me was not ready to see that. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Jonathan Rausch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. This is Our American Story. our American stories and we're back with author Jonathan Rausch who's written The Happiness Curve Why Life Gets Better After 50 and we were just talking about how so many of us experience more happiness and satisfaction in our youth and then later in our lives than during midlife something that even the great 19th century painter Thomas Cole showed in his work by the way the National Gallery is in Washington D.C. his work is there Worth a trip just to see it. It's so staggering and so beautiful. The Adventures of Life. Jonathan, you were motivated to look into this topic of happiness and ultimately write this book because of your own life. It's odd to be in your mid-40s having achieved all of your important life goals but feeling down. Talk about your own journey, starting with this quote from your book. Quote, I was in the closet with my unhappiness. Well, I was, and Carl is. I think Carl said that he'd only ever told one other person how he was feeling, and it wasn't his wife. I talked to another guy who was going through the same thing, and he said that he had tried telling a friend or two, and, and then he stopped doing that because one of them gossiped about it, and he he didn't want to be a source of actual ridicule, you know, oh, Lee's going through his midlife crisis. Hey, Lee, when are you going to buy the sports car? Ha, ha, ha. Right. So the happiness curve is totally normal, natural, and healthy. It's very unpleasant if you're going through it, but it has a payoff, which we should talk about, which is what happens in our 50s, 60s, and beyonds. It's reorienting us to be less focused on ambition and achievement as a source of our personal well-being and more focused on connection and community, which comes later in life and is a much more fulfilling source of happiness. But in between, there's this nasty transition when we're disappointed in the happiness achievement has brought us and the new values haven't really arrived yet. That's a natural process, right? It's a little bit like adolescence. It's just something many people go through. I mean, a lot of people have a hard time in adolescence. So, you know, fine, we help them get through it. But we make it much worse. We do that in a few ways. And we should talk about all of them, but one of them is what you just mentioned. We make fun of this period in life, and we make people feel like middle age is supposed to be the peak of life. You know, they're masters of the universe. They're taking care of their kids and their parents, and they've got the mortgage, and they've got the high-profile career, and they're good at everything. They're supermen and superwomen. So... If people are feeling bad in this portion of life, and it does turn out to be a very vulnerable portion of life, well, they're bottling it up. They're feeling like, I can't tell anyone about this. And, you know, I'm a 
gay man, and I lived through life in the closet. And very quickly, when I started hearing people's stories, I realized this is the closet all over again. I mean, it's never going to be super easy to be gay, but having to bottle it all up, be ashamed of it, not tell anyone, go on about your life without opening up about the true you, that makes it much worse. And that's what's going on with Carl. Indeed, and I would say this about so many things in life. The more we open up and share, the more we can know that other people in the world are going through the same thing, Jonathan. Let's talk about happiness and income. Quote, all the evidence says that on average, people are no happier today than people were 50 years ago, writes Richard Laird, a prominent British economist. Yet, at the same time, average incomes doubled. This paradox is equally true for the U.S., Britain, and Japan, so economic well-being doesn't make a person happier or less happy, Jonathan? Well, it's a bit more complicated than that because poverty is immiserating. So getting out of poverty is really important. But beyond a certain point, they're diminishing returns of additional income because it turns out that once you're beyond the poverty level, you're, you're living pretty well, it's just not actually that helpful to have your fourth or fifth you know, million dollar. In fact, it can be counterproductive because of what psychologists call the hedonic treadmill, which is when you're in a race for money or status, you're always comparing yourself above you to the people who are higher than you and you're trying to catch up. But there's always going to be someone higher than you. So you become like a gerbil, um, one of those little running, running loop cycle things. The more you try to get status, the more you feel like you're not getting there. So beyond a certain point, investing and in making more money or having more status turns out not to be a reliable way to increase your well-being and sometimes can make it worse. Here's the most fundamental finding of happiness economics you wrote. The factors that most determine our happiness are social and not material. Talk about that. This is, this is the core finding of research in multiple disciplines now, economics, psychology, neuroscience. Human beings are tribal animals. We're social animals. We're wired to be in groups. And the main determinant of our happiness is having trusting, loving relationships, supportive relationships, reliable relationships with the people around us. Investing in people and connections and community in a supportive way that is the opposite of the hedonic treadmill. It turns out that those that's like putting happiness in the bank. It not only makes you more satisfied with your life in the short term, it's cumulative. It's, it's not a situation where the goalposts move. Unfortunately, when we're young, it's hard to focus on those things because we're wired to be ambitious when we're young. Evolution wants us to go out and you know really impress, impress our fellow tribes, people, and get lots of status and lots of social connections and, you know, a fat Rolodex and thus lots of mating opportunities. So that means early in life, it's harder to live according to this, what we now know about happiness. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try, though. Indeed. Let's talk about Aristotle and the virtues he wrote about centuries ago relating to life. It turns out after all these centuries... He was on the mark about a lot of things. Human beings are still in the end, Jonathan, human beings. Yeah, it's funny. I wonder about Aristotle. Was he 
a creature from outer space because he got so much right. And it took really modern science to understand how right he was. Aristotle is a Greek philosopher, of course, um, 5th century BC. And he makes this important distinction that real happiness is not just transitory cheerfulness. It's a sense of fulfillment with your life, a sense of satisfaction with your life. And that, he says, comes not from pleasure, but from inculcating in yourself a virtuous life, which basically means doing things that are good for yourself and other people and making that a habit. So you don't even have to think about it that much. And all of this turns out to be exactly true, so much so that, you know, I kind of wonder, how did he know that? There's a big basic distinction between happiness in the sense of emotional feeling good right now and happiness in the sense of well-being, feeling satisfaction with your life as a whole. Everything we're talking about in this conversation is about the latter. Indeed. It's about that sense of well-being, which is much more important for life satisfaction overall um, than just your mood. You know, I don't think people can hear that often enough. The culture, Jonathan, sends so many messages directly to the contrary. Buy this, you'll be happier. Go here, you'll be happier. Travel here, you'll be happier. Love all these different people as opposed to one person, and you'll be happier. In the age of Tinder and Instagram, this is very counterintuitive. Yeah, that's the thing about Aristotle. He's been rediscovered by modern science, as has wisdom, which is another piece of Aristotle, which we should come back to. But we have, as a culture, spent the last multiple decades moving in the opposite direction. The idea behind Facebook, you know, it was supposed to be, we'll connect the world and everyone will be happier because we'll have a zillion connections instead of just, you know, these 30 or, or so key people in our lives that we mostly talk to face to face. Well, it turns out the opposite is true. It turns out what we're doing on Facebook is not connecting, it's displaying, as psychologists put it, um, which means showing off our carefully curated lifestyle homepages in which we're always happy and we're always on vacation and, and showing, you know, pictures of big smiley pictures. Or we're displaying our animosity to the other side, to groups that we hate, right. which is a way of ingratiating ourselves with our own group. So that means, you know, we're on Twitter slamming people and trolling. So it turns out once again that, that the old wisdom about this is right. There's no substitute for close connections in person, face-to-face -face with real people. And when we come back, we're to continue this terrific conversation with Jonathan Rausch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Go to Amazon and buy this book. Again, it's The Happiness Curve. And I'll tell you, you'll feel happier about a lot of things and better. If you're going through some things, you're going to get through those things, more than likely. And these are just, well, it's just a part of life and living, these stages of life. The Happiness Curve, Jonathan Rausch, we continue our conversation after these messages here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return with author Jonathan Rausch and his book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Go to Amazon and buy this book. You won't put it down. You'll learn so much. Give it to a friend, too, especially if they're in their mid-30s, early 40s. Heck, give it to people in their 20s, too. They can at least get a sense of what's coming in life. Then they can get through life in a better way, in a, in a, in a, well, in a more relaxed way. Let's talk about the curve part of your life, Jonathan. We live in a society that celebrates and glamorizes youth. But on average, most people reach their highest levels of life satisfaction in their later years. Not in childhood, not in midlife, when many of us are at our professional peak. This is a fairly new discovery. Talk about it. Well, yeah, it goes back about 20, 25 years. The biggest, strangest thing I learned in writing The Happiness Curve is that midlife crisis is very often literally about nothing. And we should come back to that because that throws off a lot of people. But the most surprising thing I learned is what you just said, that other things being equal, of course, individual mileage will vary, but other things being equal, as we get older, our life satisfaction increases right through old age. We're actually programmed by evolution as we move out of our 50s and beyond to invest more in those key relationships with other human beings, to care more about community and less about personal advancement. And that plus changes in the brain, which actually make us more positive about life as we get old, actually increases contentment even in many cases, if we're ailing and sick, this is the opposite of the stereotype of aging, which is old people are crotchety, lonely, depressed. And after about age 50, you know, it's going to be a long, slow decline. And of course, that makes it worse because everyone who's unhappy at age 45 or 50 thinks, well, I'm, this, is, this is bad and this is the peak. It only gets worse. So then they get pessimistic as well as disappointed. So it's very important for people to understand that that's not true at all. The stereotype of aging is is just plain wrong, and this is one of the most robust findings out there. Um, Things get better. Emotional satisfaction gets better as you get older. You get better at regulating your emotions. You experience less regret, less stress in any given situation, more positivity. Even true of what you perceive, they put people in brain scanners, and older brains react more to positivity you know, things like smiley faces and less things, less to negativity, things like frowning faces. So I tell you right about time also a lot, Jonathan. Time matters. Those were two words you wrote together. It was a sentence, and it was a big one. Talk about why you put those two words together. We imagine that aging is the passage of time in our lives is a neutral process. So, you know, it's just the clock ticking. It's the background. Or we imagine that aging is a process of slow decline because, of course, you know, our bodies deteriorate over time and then eventually we die. So those are the two models of how age affects us in life, but they're both wrong. The big finding of the last, really, it's only been nailed down in the past 10 years or so. It's really brand new stuff. Um, In multiple disciplines is that the shape of time is U-shaped. And that's the happiness curve. The passage of time tends to reduce our life satisfaction, other things being equal, from early adulthood, you know, when we're about 20, 
to about midlife. And we'll experience typically a nadir, a bottom to this cycle at around the age of 50. It varies depending on country. And of course, individuals are different. And then time, just when we least expect it to, just when we've given up and we think, oh my God, I'm in for a lifetime of disappointment and gloom. Time turns around, it switches sides, and it goes into this reverse cycle of positive feedback where we're feeling better about life and we're positively surprised that we're feeling better because we thought, you know, we're going to decline into sadness and death. And, and those two things feed on themselves. So that's the shape of time. And that's what Thomas Cole's paintings are really about. He makes this clear. If we look hard, we see that there's an hourglass is the prominent feature of three of the paintings. So his message is, this is what time is going to do to you. And let's talk about that midlife malaise, because you said it's often about, well, like Seinfeld's show, nothing. Talk about that. Yeah. We imagine that if we're not feeling good about life, then there must be something wrong with our life something we've got to change, you know, job, marriage. In my case, it was job. When I started having this fog of disappointment that I couldn't seem to get away from, I started fantasizing about escaping, walking and quitting my job and escaping to some other whole different kind of line of work. I didn't know what. It was, it was just a fantasy, but lots of people experience that. Well, it turns out human beings are not very good at attributing the causes of our happiness and unhappiness. What I was really doing was flailing around. My rational mind was looking for a way to explain what in fact was going on just because of changes in my brain and because of my age. What I was in fact feeling, this rough, rough patch in my 40s, this was a built-in transition. Lots of people go through it. Not everybody, but lots of people. It's totally normal, but it's not about anything. It's just change. One way that we, that we have that confirms that is that the same pattern of declining happiness followed by increasing happiness for the bottom and the middle of life has turned up in chimps and orangutans. And there, you, you know pretty well it's not about anything because they don't have you know, careers and, and families and marriages and all that. So the problem is the happiness curve, age-related dissatisfaction, as, as I call it, is not really about anything. It's just something that's happening. It's like, you know, what is adolescence about? Well, you know, it's a stage, right? It's natural human development. But we make the mistake of thinking it must be about something, so we leave our marriages, we quit our job. For most people, midlife dissatisfaction, the bottom of the happiness curve, is not a crisis. It's the opposite of a crisis. It's just a long, slow slog, and we live with it and go on with our lives. It's not, it's not acute depression. It's just a big nuisance. If we misattribute it and we go out and make you know, big life mistakes based on the false idea that what we really need is to throw all the, the whole pack of cards in the air, quit our job, leave our marriage, and go off to Tahiti, well... That becomes midlife crisis. Most people don't have that, but a U-curve turns into a V-curve, this sudden sharp crash, often because we make these mistakes. So it's really important to know if you're in a midlife slump, it's probably not about you. It may not be about your life. You may need change in midlife, as at any other time of life. Change is often good, but don't be radical. 
don't be disruptive. Don't be impulsive. Impulsivity is not your friend at this stage. Plan it carefully. Talk to people. Make sure it's a progressive, sensible change for you. And when we come back more with author Jonathan Rausch, the book is The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And if you like what you hear here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And we'll send you the five best stories each week. And this is a story in the end, not only about Jonathan Rausch's uh, curve, his happiness curve, and his experience at the bottom of that curve, but all of our lives. And we all know what he's talking about. I think that so many of you are nodding and thinking, aha, that's what this was all about, this journey. When we come back, more with Jonathan Rausch. And thanks always to MyPillow.com. The folks there, well, they, they make the best pillows in America. And if you want some real happiness, a good night's sleep will get you there. Go to MyPillow.com and tell them, well, at least enter the promo code STORIES to get their very best specials. That's MyPillow.com. And again, my wife and I use them. We actually fight over whose pillow is whose. And we think we like each other's pillows more than our own. It's very strange. MyPillow.com. Real happiness is a good night's sleep. When we come back, more with author Jonathan Rauch. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with author Jonathan Rausch, whose own midlife unhappiness prompted him to take a deep dive into the science of happiness throughout human life. In writing his book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, he discovered that on average, people develop higher life satisfaction later in their life, even as they're getting sick more often and can't do all the things they once did. Jonathan, in your chapter called The Paradox of Aging, we meet a 94-year-old woman named Nora who rates her life as 100% satisfied with everything. Tell us about Nora. Nora um, actually passed away since I wrote those words. She was 94, and she, I don't know if I put this in the book, but she had a cancer diagnosis at the time. And yet there she was saying it was the most fulfilling part of her life ever, even though she had some terrible losses. Her husband had died many years ago, and she had been single. Um, she'd been the caregiver for her sister who had had Alzheimer's who had died and that had been a rough patch. She was very wise and she said, these things that used to seem like they mattered so much, I'm not using her words, but she said they seem ephemeral now. People later in life feel like they no longer have anything to prove. They feel like they can focus more on the, on the most important things in life. And that's partly because their brains have changed to allow them to do that. And it's, it's very common. There's tons of evidence now, just tons, that what I saw in Nora and other people, I surveyed lots of people for my book and interviewed lots of people, that this is a, a very deep phenomenon. This is, this is really changes in our brains and values as we age that make it easier to be satisfied and easier to be wise. 
You know, you write, quote, fortunately, the depressive realism of middle age turns out to be, well, unrealistic. Life indeed gets better, much better. Again, this is not what the culture sells us. Old age is like death in the culture. Yeah, one of the reasons I wrote this book is it's all the stuff I'd wish that I could have known when I was 40. And by the time I was 50, I was so pessimistic about the future because I saw at that point, you know, 10 or so years of this fog of disappointment. And part of the reason I was so gloomy about the future is what you just said. You know, the story that our society says is, well, it's all downhill from here. If I had just known that if I can just wait this thing out, not make any big mistakes, that it's got a wonderful payoff, it's a transition. It's not midlife crisis. It's, it's midlife transition to a different brain and a different value set that turn out to be more rewarding. I'm textbook. I seem to be like right from central casting. My U-curve bottomed out in my late 40s around the time I lost my parents and actually had some major setbacks in life. And I started feeling like maybe it was turning around by the time I was 51 or 52. I'm 58 now. And of course, you know, life is life, right? There's setbacks, there are disappointments, there's anger and, and all kinds of stuff. And of course, there's politics right now. But despite all that, I also feel gradually like I'm getting more settled. All these voices and fantasies about escape and worthlessness have have pretty much gone. So that's that's the real story. Some really prominent social and behavior scientist, Jonathan, came to a pretty startling conclusion in 2011. I'm going to quote again from your book. The peak of emotional life may not occur until well into the seventh decade. And you wrote right after that, the seventh decade exclamation point. Why that exclamation point? It's so counterintuitive. It's what you just said earlier, Lee. You know, we, we just imagine that by the age of 70, much less, you know, 80, that we'll be in sad decline. And it's it's just not true. The emotional peak of life is much later. And you mentioned earlier that we have this idea that youth is, you know, it's a time of, of gloriousness and happiness. And, well, most of us have been through that period of life. And the reality about our 20s is that, that they're a time of extreme emotional volatility and great uncertainty. And that goes away later in life. You become much better at balancing emotions, at experiencing equanimity, meeting the world with a sense of perspective. Let's talk about the happiness curve and its purpose, because it's social, and it bends toward this thing called wisdom. Again, those ancient philosophers like Aristotle, they were onto something. Talk about Paul. His story was remarkable and universal. Paul is a guy who I met when I was on a speaking trip and he was, I was driving around with him and his story turned out to be a midlife crisis story. It does happen. He was a super motivated, high achiever, ice climber, wanted to do all the hardest routes in the world and broke both his legs trying to do it and would obsess if he wasn't, you know, out there on the ice every winter had marriage kids, and he just fell apart in his 40s. When he put himself back together, a big element is that he went out to an Indian reservation to do some teaching and saw the poverty and need out there and began to throw himself into that. And that changed his life. Well, from his perspective, he feels like 
the reservation did this to him. Really, I think the science is more like he did this to him. His brain was not receptive to doing that kind of close, social, connected work when he was younger because he was focused on personal ambition. That's how we're wired. But he became, as he aged through this crisis and beyond, he became more oriented toward helping other people and found a deeper level of satisfaction than he ever known before. And one of the things he said to me along the way was that he thought he had a better toolkit for life, which I thought was a great phrase. So I put that in my pocket and was looking at the literature on what's going on behind the happiness curve. Why would evolution want us to have this additional satisfaction later in life? And the word wisdom kept popping up. It turns out there's a science of wisdom. Wisdom is not like some folklore concept from fairy tales. It's a real thing. It's measurable. There are tests for it. There are people looking for it in brain scans. It's not the same as knowledge, expertise, skill, experience. It's certainly not the same as intelligence. It has almost zero relationship to how intelligent you are, how wise you are. But wisdom is just what Paul said. It's about having that toolkit for life. So it's wisdom is rare at any age, young or old, but we're better equipped for wisdom as we get older because wisdom is about the ability to balance competing emotions, to synthesize a lot of experience, not to fly off the handle too much, and it's especially about helping navigate complex social situations. We think that's why it exists. Tribes that have wise people tend to do better, and families that have wise people, because wise people help offer good advice about how to cope with stuff. And lastly, Jonathan, talk about faith and religious community. Many of the happiest and most satisfied among us are also people of deep faith. Does that have any relationship to the happiness curve? Faith, I think, is something largely separate. Um, the happiness curve is about the effect of time, but it's important for people to remember lots of other things affect your well-being in life. You know, for example, your health and the satisfaction you get from your job and the quality of your marriage. And yes, faith is an important element of that. So on any given day, Lee's or Jonathan's life satisfaction depends on a host of variables, and no one should think that time, the happiness curve, is the only thing going on. It's one of a lot of things going on. So by all means, faith can increase well-being, and there's a lot of documentary evidence to, to show that that's true. But it's, it's kind of a separate thing. It's, it's a good thing. It's an important thing, and I ran across it when I was doing my research. But what we need to remember is it's not the only thing going on. Your age will also affect your happiness, and it will affect your receptivity to faith and to community and stuff like the amount of and quality of volunteering that you're doing, for example, which is important in many faith communities. Indeed. And, and I'm going to end with a, a line that I think almost summarizes the book. It's just such a beautiful one. Time and aging fight happiness in midlife, then switch sides. Talk about that. That's it. It's what I it's what I just said. You know, it's time and aging are not the only thing going on. 
it's like you can walk uphill and it's harder or downhill and it's easier, but where you go depends on what direction you set and the terrain and, you know, and the distance and the weather. Lots of things go on, but it's very important to know that there is this U-shape to life and that if you're someone who is feeling that, you know, your, your midlife is a grind of disappointment and it seems like it's, it's never going to end and you don't know what to do, for a lot of people, in a lot of cases, what to do is nothing. It's not literally nothing. Reach out to other people. It's, it's better not to bottle this up. Avoid big mistakes and impulsive decisions of the time we talked about earlier. Counseling is often a good idea. These days, there's counselors know all about this, and they're not going to tell you you're depressed, you need medication, off to the, the funny farm. So, and coaching is a really good thing to do because coaching is about realigning our lives to meet our changing values. And that's especially important in middle age because that's what's really going on. So all of those things can help, but the most important thing is to understand that what's happening to you is natural, normal, healthy, nothing to be ashamed of, and it goes away. It gets better. And we're speaking with Jonathan Rausch's book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And Jonathan, thanks for joining us. It was great to be here. Thank you. And go to Amazon.com and get The Happiness Curve. It's as good a book as I've read in a very long time. This is Lee Habib, Jonathan Rausch's story, the story of human happiness, here on Our American Stories. <laughs>